0: Hello, and welcome to the Spotlight Podcast. My name is Elida Arden, I work at Spotlight, and in today's episode, I'm going to be chatting to Dave Hearn. Dave is an actor and co-founder of Olivier Award-winning theatre company, Mischief Theatre, who you might know from their smash hits, The Play That Goes Wrong, The Play About Bank Robbery, and now, The Goes Wrong Show on the BBC. We will be discussing Dave's journey with Mischief Theatre, from the early days of performing in rooms above pubs, right through to the West End transfers and TV commissions that followed. We'll also chat about the teething pains of trying to make your own work as a performer and how Dave kept going when he thought about giving it all up. Dave also gives some insight into how doing some improv could help with all aspects of an actor's performance. It's a humorous deep dive into the world of making your own work and intricacies of comedy performance, so I hope you enjoy it. Dave, hello, thank you for coming and chatting to me.
1: Yes, hello. Um, So you would have just done your intro then, wouldn't yes, you, to me. I would
0: have just done your yeah. intro. <laughs> Which you
1: haven't written yet. So <laughs> anyone listening, that was a lie. That, this is not <laughs> happening now. It's, that was recorded afterwards. It uh, is intro.
0: the mastery of production. Mm. Um, so... Let's talk about uh, Mischief Theatre and Dave Hearn and all of that. Um, let me, uh, in case anybody is not yet familiar with the story of Mischief Theatre, um, would you mind giving us a little walkthrough of your journey, of kind of where you started, um, how yeah. you were involved, etc, etc, and how you got to be where you are today?
1: A little uh, a little kind of snapshot. Um, sure. So but we went to, lots of us went to the foundation course on lambda in 2007 and then in 2008 uh we formed um the company under a, a different name uh, which subsequently we changed because it was a bad name uh and then we were doing lots of um improv shows and stuff uh, mainly we would go out to edinburgh every year and do improv shows and we started doing improv shows in london whilst we all went to our various three-year courses on uh, various different drama schools um and yeah we were an improv company for about five, six years maybe um, doing the sort of fringe circuit, but we always try to just make enough money to go back to Edinburgh. And then we wrote a very short 50 minute play uh, called The Murder Before Christmas, which later became the play that goes wrong. Um, And that kind of built once Kenny Wax and Mark Bentley came to see the show and we then took it on tour and um, then it went to the West End and then Broadway and um, other shows developed from that. We have like five or six other shows in the, in the West End and on tour and stuff. Um, and then we moved into TV and started doing a lot more stuff for the BBC. And we're kind of keep going from there. Um, so that's like the super short version. Um, and that's sort of, yeah, how we, how we built up from a tiny little room above the pub to... Yeah now
0: that's amazing that's amazing. Blackout
1: goes in <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um and this journey from kind of teeny tiny rooms above pubs to Edinburgh to West End to Broadway to t v um I mean l- emotionally, how was it <laughs> mm,
1: uh, it, was, it was kind of strange, really. it was sort of like each progression, i think. I think when people will hear the story, they like to believe it's this kind of like fairy tale rocket to the top, but like, actually it took many, many years. Um, you know, like I said, those kind of five, six years before, before the play that goes wrong of just working together. Like I've known Henry Lewis now, who's the artistic director, um, like yeah, for nearly 14 years. And so it's kind of crazy to think. He's one of my oldest friends, like the people that I've known the longest and the most. And so when we when we started getting more and more kind of successful in, in that sense of the word, um, it sort of felt like <clears throat> the next logical progression, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but there's there's just a big leap where you need some luck, I think. So I think for me, the first time we opened the play that goes round on tour was in Canterbury. And that's 1,200 seats maybe. And the most we performed to was about two hundred people, two hundred fifty. Oh, yeah. And so, and also you take the play that goes wrong the first time. We opened it in the old Red Lion. We performed to twelve people, <laughs> um, and it was at a push a fifty-seater venue. And then we opened to Canterbury to a completely full house of one thousand two hundred people, and it so it was it's Huge a crazy jump. crazy jump.
0: Yeah.
1: And also as well like without, you know we we did the old Red Lion, then we got asked to come back and do another run. Then we got transferred to Fab Studios. Then we got asked to extend that run and extend it it again. Then we went to Edinburgh. And then that's kind of just how most theatre companies would have just kind of carried on. All the while, you just got to hope someone comes in. And that's where Kenny and and Mark came in. And you're talking a leap of tens of thousands of pounds, if not more, to take those kind of shows to tour into the West End, just money that a new theatre company doesn't have. And so, that kind of emotional jump—you have these weird waypoints where you, you go, oh wow, there's somebody building the set. It's not me anymore. It's not me and Ken <laughs> having to like fix stuff. It's not Nancy having to paint stuff. It's not like me and Rob Falconer having to rig twelve lights. Yeah. And me trying to remember my BTEC technical theatre course <laughs> of how to like hang a light. Is there's a guy whose job it is to do that. Um, having costume designers, having wardrobe and having a dressing room like kind of crazy things that now are the staple for a theatre show but being paid to do it like we couldn't afford to pay ourselves and so when those things kind of start happening it is really you're like what
0: you want to you wanna, what okay yeah,
1: yeah, you
0: yeah. want to give me money <laughs> you want to
1: give me money for that and then someone comes in is just like um yeah just uh, hang your costumes up uh, any kind of laundry just chuck in here and you're like oh, what well, I okay, I don't have to do it. It's like, no, 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 someone will do that for you. It's like, okay, thanks very much. Um, And then you come in every day and your costume's just hanging on the rail. It's all ironed, it's all clean. It's not like still wet from the day before because you (laughs) haven't had time to like dry it because of the get out. You also don't have to take the set down after every show and put it on the roof, which is what we had to do (laughs) at the Old Red Lion.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And like cover it in tarpaulin because it was winter and we were worried that it would get rained on. And so we had to do a get in and get out every day. You don't, you don't do that anymore. So, yeah, there's kind of those, those kind of crazy small things that really, really stick with you. Um, and now we're just a bunch of divas. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we expect so much.
0: I'm sure you're very down to earth still. <laughs> we try. We try. Um, okay, so I've, I've picked up two things. The first is from uh, what was the, what was the old name that you said wasn't very good that. You... So
1: the company originally was called the Scat Pack right okay which stick with me now um (laughs) i will absolve myself of all responsibility because i didn't want to be called that but it was done by um some of the guys scat is like from improvisational jazz yes yeah um but it's also fecal pornography
0: oh it is isn't it
1: yeah and so um occasionally we were just stung by this uh by this by this name, people would just be like, and next up we have, oh, okay, um, the Scat Pack. And we mm. were just like, oh, no, we, we've got to change it. And so um, we'd written a few other kind of like sketch shows that were a bit more edgy and a bit more offensive and lots of kind of like not not our usual traditional family-friendly style. And we kind of came up with this name for this sketch group called The Despicables, um, which we quite liked as a name, but obviously like as a company, we're not despicable you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. we were like, we kind of sat around a table one night and we were, we were coming up with loads and loads of different names, loads of kind of, you know, like cool, young people, theatre names. And then I think someone p- literally picked up a thesaurus and went through the word despicable and one of it, one of the synonyms was mischievous. Um, and so we were like mischief is a really good, we cause mischief, we create mischief, mischief is fun. Mischief isn't like, oh, that's despicable behaviour. It's <laughs> like that's a bunch of silly people trying to like mess around. And so yeah. that's kind of how it came from there.
0: Mischief is definitely more palatable than despicable, mm. which definitely ties into where you've ended up in this kind of very rounded, um, family-friendly um, genre, I suppose. Mm. Um, but I really like that. I like the idea that you guys had something and you kind of realised it wasn't working and you were willing to go with the change rather than um, kind of like, no, this is who we are. We are not compromising Mm. on Scat Pack or whatever it was. (laughs) Um, Because I think that... um, Well, it's a lesson that I think a lot of early career, either actors or artists or something like that, um, it's something that they struggle with where they want to be flexible, but they also want to stick to their guns in terms of principle. And I think it's a really nice lesson there that you're kind of revealing. We were willing to, we were willing to see the flaws in something that was early. Yeah. You've got to kind of
1: like shift with it. And I think at the time your bubble is, is, you know, you expand into the world that is available. Mm -hmm. And so at the time we were like, we've got this following of people and we've been doing Edinburgh for five, six years and we kind of, you know, people knew who we were and, oh, if we change the name, is it going to confuse people? And like, I'd say now, if we change the name, it might be a bit difficult, but actually like the impact that it had on the industry was minimal. And so you kind of you you just kind of go oh okay this this one thing it's not a huge problem the name wasn't a huge problem but it, it was something that was causing a problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, thing to bear in mind when people are starting out. I used to have my own theatre company and we used to go round and round in circles about whether sh- we should change our name or not. We ended up not, um, probably to our detriment. Um, sure. <laughs> the, the, what was it called? Uh, it was called Blockstop. They won't mind me sharing it. It's, we, mm-hmm. we are we are no longer. Um, but yeah, it was, a lot of people would be like, is it lock stock and like, so, you know, like it was, sure. it just wasn't, it popped in the, all the wrong ways, I suppose. Um, and it's a lesson that I think, uh, we should have taken with us in the early days. Um, okay. And the other thing that I picked up on was the BTEC, in stage lighting (laughs) Mm. um let's talk a little bit about your background and about the training or the lack of training that you might have had in areas that you suddenly found yourself being like oh my god I have to do this um how do you think some of that informed other areas like what informed what let's say
1: what informed what so I think when I was I when we got to choose our GCSEs um I swapped at last minute Uh, IT or drama and it was because I was quite a shy kid um, and I was quite um, at that stage I was kind of going through a sort of transition that I wanted to hang out with the cool kids and I started playing rugby and I started going drinking in parks and talking to girls and kind of figuring out where I was in the kind of social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't like a popular kid, but I was part of that crew. And um, I was very lucky that it had a really healthy, or I think quite healthy dynamic. Um, and within that, I sort of wanted to use drama as an excuse to boost my confidence, basically. Uh, and I got an A-star in GCC drama. Wow. And so I sort of remember, I think I I must have enjoyed it. Um, and then I, when I went to sixth form, I just kind of hated being in a classroom and I think I didn't want to do that anymore. So so I took some time out and I was like kind of a bit lost. I didn't really know what to do. I got some good jobs and bad jobs and I decided to go to my local college and do a BTEC in performing arts. Um, And part of that, part of the reason for that was because I just remember thinking, oh, well, I enjoyed doing drama. And also because it was a vocational course that didn't really have much written work Um, and that I didn't want to do that. And so part of that course was a technical theatre section, which was like only about an hour or two a week. Um, But weirdly, I remember so much from that um, because I found just the practical application of how to hang a light, what the different lights were called, what they did, um, difference between like a source four and a park or like a floodlight or how to fit a gel or what the point of a safety chain was and all that kind of stuff. And so I think it just meant that those kind of skills early on gave us enough ammunition for our own identity to kind of be like, this is really important to us for the show, even though it's a little fringe show that's probably only going to get 10 people in. Yeah. But it's it's the show that we want to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing is this idea that as a performer, you know, you can walk into a space and be told to kind of say lines and maybe input in your own kind of performative way into how something takes shape. But as that transition between performer into theatre maker um, mm. is quite distinct insofar as you have to be willing to have that vision, you also have to be, I mean, you've already described this with the kind of difference between the early days and the old days, you have to be willing to kind of get stuck in and do a little bit of everything in order to realize yeah. that vision. Um and how easy was it for you guys to come together and bring those visions to the table? Um was it was it a kind of intensive process? Was there was it hierarchical? Was it non-hierarchical? Um how did it all work? We we
1: went through quite a few changes actually. I think really early on um Henry Lewis did a lot of the work, particularly like a lot of the admin and stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of kind of driving stuff forward, booking venues, things like that. Um, and we were just sort of along for the ride, really. Um, and then Jono, uh, Jonathan Sayer, who's the company director, he joined probably about six months after the company was sort of founded. Um, and he worked with Hen and took on a lot of the work as well. So. The higher they're, they're still the directors of the company um mm-hmm. so they kind of sit at the top of the pyramid um but actually and they they deserve to as well because they did so much work early on and they do so much work now sometimes more more than they need to you know but they're learning because they're in they're in meetings with uh, producers and um big west end producers big broadway producers and bbc and commissioning editors and all this kind of crazy stuff and people with crazy titles, but they're, they're learning, um, they're learning how to run a show. And so they, yeah, they worked really, really hard early on. Um, but also we were able to meet every Saturday or every Sunday for for four or five years straight. Like we never really missed a, a week and we would come together and we would improvise and work on new ideas for the show. Um, improvise scenes together and just practice together and then go and do a show in the evening that hen and john had booked at the hen and chickens or canal cafe or whatever right. um and you know john had the really difficult job of sort of being like okay guys so we've only sold six for tonight so we need to let's how can we get back to 10 or 12 or 20 um you know text your friends text your family We'll. they're the ones making decisions can we afford to do a two for one can we afford to do you know is it actually better we're going to lose money anyway so let's just give away a couple of free tickets and get people in and like and you know you have people like me being like i can't you know i need to get paid to do this kind of stuff and just being like well we can't we can't pay people because then we can't afford to do the show and so you're kind of all constantly redrawing boundaries between who are your friends and who's your boss kind of thing but it was real i think the company was and and to a degree still is a a real kind of democracy in, in that sense. And, it, and it, we, we share the, the responsibility. And really early on, um, there was, I really remember, uh, there was a point where uh, Hen, for example, he, he became quite emotional at one point where the workload for him personally was becoming too much. And I think there was um, there was a conflict, particularly, I, I, I remember being quite upset because I remember thinking, I remember thinking Hen was not delegating and not trusting other people to do stuff. Right, um, And through probably probably some fault of his own and some fault of other people, he'd sort of ended up cornering himself into being the person who could, only, could be the only one to do it. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. he knew the people at the venue. So if I was in charge of booking a venue, actually like Hen had to hand all that information over to me, I would have to contact the person at the venue, introduce myself and they're kind of going, okay, so I, I could just... Call Hen and book this, and I'm going. No, 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 you need to speak to me. And they're going, okay, I need this, this, and this. And I go, oh, I don't know what any of that is. So I go back to Hen, and so there's all those kind of teething problems, and it ended up just Hen being like, it's just easier if I if I just keep doing it. And yeah, he he, I remember him saying he was just like, I, d- I don't know if I can do this anymore because like we're not being paid, the company isn't this huge, successful, global thing, mm-hmm. you know, and the workload is huge for very little return. Um, and so what we did was we we had an uncomfortable conversation where me and a few other people got to say you're not delegating we're trying to do stuff and he's like okay I need you to try harder Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and so then what ended up happening was we created kind of uh, so I um, me and Charlie became head of press and marketing and stuff like that and John became head of booking venues and other people became heads of other little mini departments and stuff and Hen could kind of then delegate and we would be able to just say like, okay, here's, here's something where you, it's going to take longer, but you need to just hand me all the information. Yeah. Um, and it just became, it just started to run a bit smoother then.
0: Yeah. I mean, those, they're growing pains really, aren't they? Mm. Um, because initially when everyone starts doing something, you're that's fine because as you say you're playing to a crowd of 12 and then it gets to 20 and then it gets to 50 and you're like this is still cool I can handle it and I'm inviting in like x amount of press or whatever but the more you grow the more that work (laughs) builds Yeah increases and (laughs) you talked about that idea of everyone giving in x amount and it being quite kind of uh difficult to get anything back be it financially be it um, I suppose you know you're grafting and you're wondering why haven't we taken over the world yet? Um, mm. And obviously now you're in a place where um, you've got the magic show coming up. I, I watched the YouTube trailer for that that was posted the other day. I think um, very nice.
1: I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's amazing. <laughs> maybe I have seen it. I should have seen it. Head of press. I shall I've seen. It. I've seen it. <laughs>
0: um, but you, and and you've done international etc. But in those days when you were. Um, kind of early and you were starting off and it felt like too much and what was it that kept you going? I'm sure that it's one of those things that I'm sure mm. a lot of spotlight members think, a lot of anyone in any creative industry um, faces that question of like, how, how, how should I keep going? Um, I
1: think it's really hard. I think when you're at drama school and you have this kind of company and We were quite unique in the sense that we were doing shows at the weekends. Those are the times that are actually quite easy because you have a support network when you're at drama school. The tricky bit is when, as you say, is when you leave. Um, And I think sometimes it's uh, for some actors individually, it's about patience. Sometimes Mm -hmm. their casting bracket won't come for another four or five years, um, or they will figure out how to sell themselves. You know, a 25 year old, leaving drama school is going to be very different to what you're like when you're 30. Your casting is going to be different. You might be a a better actor by then. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It is really hard. And so what keeps you going is each other for one and luck. Mm. So when we were doing, um, when we were doing the kind of weekly shows and stuff, it was, it was fine. Um, It was kind of, okay, you can book it around work and, you can kind of make it work and it's fine and no one wants to work in a bar or a restaurant but you kind of do it and you do whatever you need to
0: yeah
1: when we started doing the weekly shows when we started doing play that goes wrong and that's when things got really really tricky um and i'll kind of give you the short version of this because i seem like i say this in every interview but know, anyone that listened to us probably heard it a thousand times but <laughs> when we were doing play that goes wrong i i was working in a restaurant who were very supportive of me and my career in sloan square and um i would get up at five o'clock every day and I would do the breakfast shift at the restaurant from like 6am or 7am until about 6-7 at night. I would then go to the theatre and do two shows a night, one at 7.45 and one at 9pm. Go home, probably 11 o'clock midnight, sleep, start the whole thing again. My day off from the show was um, a Sunday where I'd do probably a 14 to 15 hour shift at the restaurant and my day off from the restaurant was Thursdays and Saturdays where I would do three shows a day. And so that continued for many, many weeks, and I probably lost about two stone oh um, in in that time because, and I smoked at the time, and I didn't have really any money at the time, and so you just you're just living a very unhealthy lifestyle. And we'd only actually really managed to be able to pay ourselves a very, very small amount for that first run at the Old Red Line, which was mm-hmm. about three weeks, um, and then you get asked to come back and do another three weeks and then you get transferred to Trafalgar Studio and you do two weeks extended mm-hmm. for two weeks extended for another two weeks and then you go into Edinburgh so by the time you get to Edinburgh you've lost two stone and you've got no money and you haven't even started Edinburgh yet and so it's like I remember having a conversation with John where I was like people keep telling me on like the fringe circuit and stuff that I must be really happy and I'm that I'm, I'm successful and I'm doing really well. It, it, I was just like, if this is what being a successful actor means, then I don't want to be an actor. I can't sustain this lifestyle. Um, and I used to have this, you know, John used to joke, like, oh, it's just one more push, it's one more push. And I was like, you, you've been saying that now for six months. And like, <laughs> when, when is it, what, what does it mean? And he was like, let's get to Edinburgh, you know, let's see what happens when we get back from Edinburgh. And yeah, sure enough, um, Kenny and Mark came to see the show. And none of us knew at the time that that was going to be the, 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 the catalyst to change everything. Um, and that's where the luck element came in. So had they not come to see the show, I probably wouldn't be an actor. And right. so the thing to, to keep you going, I would say, is um, find, sustain it for as long as it makes you happy. But don't feel disappointed or if you have failed, if you don't want to do it anymore, mm. because that is OK. I can't think of any other profession in the world where if I decided I want to be a doctor, and then after two or three years, I go, this is really hard, I don't want to be a doctor. No one says, Dave's given up being a doctor. <laughs> yes. They go, oh, Dave stopped being a doctor. But I do give up acting, or I do give up being a painter, or I do give up being a dancer. Because we, we have this social kind of coding of going, it's fanciful, it's stupid, it's not a real job to go into the arts and be creative. So eventually you're going to have to give up, Mm. but actually it's not giving up. It's just going, Oh, it's not worked out for me or I don't, I'm not encouraging people to stop doing it, but also don't pressure yourselves into feeling like air quotes because you can't see me, but the love (laughs) of it isn't, it's not practically enough to keep you going. I'm, I'm sort of now aware that this is a podcast for for actors and <laughs> creatives, and I'm sort of encouraging <laughs> you to stop doing it. And I really want to say, I really, really want to sit here and tell you that, like, the burning desire to deliver comedy and make people laugh is what fueled me to keep going. But ultimately, that didn't pay my rent. Mm-hmm. And But John was right. John was right at the end. He said, you know, there was several final pushes, to be fair, but I can sit here and and you know, profess humility and say, oh, you know, yeah, we worked hard, but we got really, really lucky. But also, had we not done all of those extra runs for free, had we not been working 20-hour days at our other jobs and doing the theatre show, then had we not turned our, you know, the reason we were doing two shows a night was because it was the only way to make money. We had 100-seater theatre that we did two shows a night, we turned it into a 200-seater theatre. yeah. And we had a six-minute turnaround to get audience out So we gave ourselves the best chance possible for Kenny and Mark to come and see the show. And Henry Lewis knew that there was interest from producers. So it was like, guys, I really think if we just extend by another two weeks, someone's going to come and see it.
0: Yeah.
1: And someone who matters and someone who has money and someone who believes in us is going to come and see it. Mm -hmm. And so we took a collective breath and we went great we're doing another two weeks of this in the hope that someone comes in and they yeah. did. So I think in terms of in terms of what keeps you going it, it is the the idea that you will get lucky and you create enough opportunity for yourself to be lucky. Mm. Um, but also if it doesn't happen, don't feel like you failed that's okay.
0: Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a, that's, it's a lovely sentiment. And I love the idea of, um, I, I there's a quote somewhere that someone said, I don't know who, I'm not learned enough to just immediately remember, but they At say that um, <laughs> luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Mm. Um, and I mean, it sounds like you guys as a collective team were very much in that space where you had prepared, prepared, prepared. And also then off the back of it, sort of found yourselves facing opportunity and boom luck um
1: yeah I think that's right and as as well like you have that thing of of kind of realizing I didn't realize this until four maybe four years ago maybe more was that like you 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 leave drama school believing you can control so much of the industry but you you, you can't And, and actually all you do is you you kind of frustrate yourself and I think that's why I was really frustrated because I was like why can't I get more auditions? Why can't I get more jobs? Why can't we be paid for this? Why can't this fun thing that I love to do help practically live my life? Yeah. Why can't it? Why can't it? Why can't it? And then actually this, the moment you realise that all of these external factors, like whether or not a producer comes and sees your show, you, you'll just live your life so much calmer when you realise that there are so many things you don't have control over.
0: I love that. I love because that I can taste it in the, what you're describing of that you know extending the run again extending the run again finessing it working through the stuff and rehearsing on the weekends and then all of this stuff sounds exactly like what you just said which is i want to make and do the best possible job that i can Mm. um and i think that personally i find that very inspiring so i hope that everybody else listening does as well yes um Let's talk about, um, I've got like a zillion other questions, but um, I'm just going to kind of go with what, what's jumping out at me. Improvising, how much does it help? How You know, doing an improv class or being part of an improvising troupe, how much does it help as a performer, as an actor, when it comes to just performing comedically?
1: Um, I would say improv as a as a creative in any sense is worth doing, mm-hmm. even if you hate it um even if you just do it a couple of times and go oh god i definitely don't want to improvise it's totally fine one just because you'll get yourself out of your comfort zone and it's great to do things that we're not good at um in terms of being an improviser specifically in terms of like the science of comedy if you will the mechanics of it i think what it does is basically it kind of teaches you in a really sharp acute way like what your clown is what your comedic clown is and what your what your go-to is when you're panicked and under pressure, do you defend or do you attack? Do you try and make a bad joke at someone else's expense? Do you just shut down? Do you panic? Is the fact that you panic funny? Is the fact that you don't quite know what to do next really, really funny? Is the fact that you lash out and say something completely irrelevant, is it funny? And so you're kind of learning, you're, yeah, you're learning what your unfiltered comedic talent is Mm -hmm. and you might not have a comedic talent (laughs) and so you might need to develop it and that's fine but you kind of learn that in a really sharp way the second thing it does is it um hones your mechanical understanding of timing so in terms of like the the space between you it's like music it's like dancing It's, it's you can feel it and so when you're and you can learn how to feel it as well. So Mm -hmm. you, you can, the more you deliver jokes when you're improvising and the more they, they fail and the more people come up to you afterwards and say, Oh, that joke you did, it didn't get as big a laugh as it deserved. And you can kind of go, okay, did I mess up the timing or, and it's, and you know, you'll be forgiven for messing up the timing because you're literally making it up as you go along, you're inventing a punchline on the spot, but the time you've probably got sometimes, between but probably about you know if we're talking practically between half a second and maybe two seconds to think of something and then deliver it but that tiny amount of time starts to feel much longer starts to feel much bigger and I sort of imagine it in my head as like a you're opening the drawer of like a filing cabinet and you're looking in and there's hundreds of thousands of files and you're just kind of like just kind of rolling down them and eventually you just your brain picks one and you deliver it the speed at which you can go through those files becomes much much faster mm-hmm. but the drawer is still the same size and so you learn in that moment of panic or whatever it is which one you can pick which one is funnier which one is you, you almost get to a point where you can actually start rejecting ideas and looking for funnier ones and then going nope, let's go back to the, the first one i rejected because that's, that tiny fraction of a second feels much longer. Then you link that back to the first thing you learned, which is how do I apply that to my clown? Yeah. So is my thing that I panic under pressure? Rather than just having uncontrolled wild panic, am I now able to control that in a way that I can deliver as being funny? And then the other people on stage with me know that my, I'm really good at panicking under pressure, so they're going to start putting me under pressure, they're going to start making me panic. And I'm going to start doing things under pressure and you can start serving people up things that their clowns are really, really good at. So I think like, um, if anyone's seen any of the mischief movie nights we did over the last couple of weeks, months, um, Harry Kershaw is, is, is a brilliant clown. He he's just like just a posh man who, um, is able to make himself look very, very foolish. But he knows exactly what he's doing and, he is really aware of why people laugh at him
0: yeah.
1: and why he's funny. And so I know what I can do is put Harry in a really high status position and then he will undercut himself. And so like for Harry, that's a gift. I'm, I'm calling him the king. I'm calling him the gangster leader. And then I get him to do something stupid and he knows exactly what I'm doing. He's not kind of second guessing me and going, Oh, oh, oh what is this? He just knows the path <laughs> that we're walking down. And so you kind of learn yes you learn the mechanics of timing you learn what your clown is and you also learn yeah the third thing is i think that you you just learn you learn to fail Mm. so much and you, you don't have time to wallow in it you have to move on and then you can wallow after but once you learn that improv is so weird in the sense that it's it's really sacred and precious but it also is worth nothing and so because it's never going to happen again it's really precious those moments are really really important but because it's never going to happen again no one's ever going to see or feel or experience that moment again it doesn't matter so if you fail in that moment it's as equally as impressive as succeeding in that moment because it doesn't matter yeah and so you kind of start to you kind of start to learn that like as crippling as those horrible moments of failure are, they're just, they're just moments of failure. And it's probably like, actually at the end of the day, like it's just all right. And it's just a show you're there to make people laugh. And sometimes you won't succeed. And that's part of learning.
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, also you're talking about failure and accepting um, sucking effectively um, Mm. at times. And I can't help but be reminded intrinsically of the actor's journey and kind of that idea of getting acquainted with rejection and learning not to take things personally or understanding when to take them personally and when to just say actually they were just after someone who looked slightly different or yeah. or whatever it is and I feel like what you're describing sounds like a fine tuning of that sense of self-awareness without then crossing into self-consciousness.
1: Yeah absolutely and I think like the actually to sort of kind of link to kind of go back and link to that, it's almost like a fourth thing that you learn is you you basically learn to create the objective in your mind is what is, what is the thing that I can do to make this moment the most fun it can be? Yes. And like, I think when you, if you're doing that in an audition for a very serious play and you don't get the part and you're rejected, but actually you've gone in with the, with the objective to create enjoyment and fun and entertainment Then personally, I don't mind being rejected. I go, oh, I had a lot of fun. I tried really hard, and they just didn't want me. They wanted somebody else. Yeah. And like, actually, that feels quite freeing and quite nice.
0: Yeah. Again, as you say, it it does link back to that idea of like sometimes it is just out of your control. (laughs) Mm. As long as you've done the best you can. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Here's something that I'm super interested in. Stage, you've done lots and lots of stage. We started off in improv, we started off um, in rooms above pubs, we moved to bigger venues, bigger venues still. Boom, TV. Mm. Uh, Let's um, talk about the transition from stage to screen and what is enhanced, what is lost, what becomes easier, what becomes harder as a performer, as a creator. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to throw it at you and let you. Yeah.
1: What is it? so? What you? I guess what you, what you gain straight away is the ability to reach a larger, larger audience.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so you know you can, you can put out a TV show and it can go to millions of people. But your theatre is only ever going to have, six hundred or a thousand or whatever. Um, what you lose is the um, is probably the immediacy of. Um, of the audience's laughter, you lose the the rhythm of the of the of the whole show um, because if you're performing. So we did Peter Pan Goes Wrong. Uh, it's like a two-hour show with an interval in the West End. Mm-hmm. Um, play is actually probably a better example. Play that goes wrong. The whole thing is built so that basically towards the end of Act Two, and it happens in Bank Robbery as well. Any kind of good farce, but like you. As an audience, you just don't really know what you're laughing at anymore. You're, you're just being (laughs) smashed with, with just, you just get the, the timing is making you laugh and something big happens, but your, your brain is subconsciously piecing together the narrative and you know why it's really important for that man, not to show that other man that he doesn't have his trousers on and they both walk into a room together and you're just laughing because it's nonsense. You kind of lose that sense of timing. You have to manufacture it. And so. You, you do lose that. But then also what you gain is you gain the idea of going, uh, you can do a massive stunt that you couldn't do on stage because you have to do it eight times a week. But actually you can have someone slide off a stairlift and smash through a wall, or you can have someone fall off a 30 foot balcony into a pile of boxes, or you can, we did with 90 degrees. You can do a whole play set at 90 degrees. And so it's like, those are the kind of things that you're able to do you couldn't you couldn't do that in the theater and even if you could it sort of wouldn't matter because you would watch that as a visual gag and after 20 minutes you'd be like i get it you're performing on the wall like well done but like in tv you can you can adapt it and you can make it more exciting
0: yeah that's so interesting and how much in the process of moving from stage to screen how much Uh, creative control do you guys uh, retain versus how much has been Mm. sort of naturally dished out to people who might be for example stunt coordinators for a set or etc etc
1: um so it kind of varies we found uh the the right balance i think Mm -hmm. so when we did pan was the first thing we took to tv but because that was an adaptation of the stage show we basically kind of had a bit more creative control because it it already existed it was what we wanted it to be and we kind of coordinated with the director and the bbc and we're just kind of like okay so we can't do a two-hour show we're going to do about an hour and a bit um let's discuss what we can lose what we want to keep and if we can add a few good stunts in and stuff like that but the show kind of was set in stone so we sort of had we had it uh, so they, they couldn't change much. Also, they didn't want to change much because mm. that was the whole reason they wanted to transfer it to TV. Yeah. Then the boys wrote Christmas Carol specifically for TV. Um, and we had a bit of an issue when we were working with BBC Studios because they were kind of producing it. And we weren't a production partner. So it meant that in theatre, the, the the writers and Helen and John as directors of the company have often been involved in budget meetings and more how creative decisions are affected and they weren't as involved in that and so we struggled a bit more in Christmas Carol because decisions were were being made without us which is how a a show runs it's just we're not used to losing that level of control and so um, I think it's fair to say I I won't go into too much detail because I actually don't know a huge amount about it but I think that process I think both sides production and creative found it quite frustrating so but everyone's working towards the same goal it's not like there's some nasty money man at the top telling us what we can't do.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of the time people kind of have that impression. And in some cases or some TV shows or some settings, that may be the case. But Mm. it sounds like, was it Big Talk, did you say, was your production? Yes. Yeah, it sounds like they kind of, they get you. And as collaborators, as partners, as um, (laughs) co-producers, that you've found like a good relationship that works, which I think is... Probably something that everybody um, who has an eye on creating their own work um, and having it, you know, become big or kind of uh, sort of partnering with people outside of themselves, that's probably worth bearing in mind. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: I think you have to really believe in what you're making. And um, and I should also say as well, like Helen John, again, as director of Mischief, have created a, a really um, intricate system so we have, like, there's Mischief Theatre, there's, there's Mischief Worldwide, which looks after our global productions, and there's also Mischief Screen, which is the kind of TV arm. So Mischief Screen is, is co-producing it with, with Big Talk, and mm-hmm. that also means that just on paper we have um, we have some autonomy, and, and so it, it just means that we're not doing the same job that Big Talk are doing. Uh, because they 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 have skills that we don't have the stuff that arrives in the studio I don't even know how it gets there but they they are providing a huge amount of stuff that we can't provide but creatively we get to work together rather than working against each other and I think like that's it's really rare I think to find that and I think it's really important that that's kind of what you all creatives aim for you know not just like right I'm in charge now it's just like how yeah. do we, how do we work together to make this brilliant
0: Yeah, a sort of interdependent relationship rather than anyone kind of lording over anybody else. Mm. Um, You guys have sort of brought back farce, right? It's Mm.
1: Very, very, that's a bold claim, but uh, I'll I'll agree with you. I'll take it.
0: Yeah, because... I'm not going to argue with you. You know, up until, I don't know what year The Office was uh, with Ricky Gervais, I don't know when that was, but up until then... Um, comedy on TV had been, um, very kind of, you know, three cameras, three lights, studio audience, and like British comedy in particular was doing weird and wacky stuff consistently with it and really fooling around with the, with the concept, um, and was quite sort of farcical in its performance, um, but never really acknowledging the fourth wall, the audience, et cetera. Then Ricky Gervais happened, The Office happened, and everything uh-huh. changed to single location or single camera location. And the idea of, like, looking to camera um, became like, we're breaking the fourth wall, but in a very different way. Uh-huh. Um, it's very edgy. And you guys have kind of come full circle and play with the audience again, but in that kind of old-school way, but doing it totally differently. My question is, what do you think could come next in terms of the TV comedy or theatrical comedy landscape? I think, um, yeah, I think
1: the point you make about um, The Office is really, really good because it sort of gave birth to the... I know it had, like, Spinal Tap and stuff, but Mm. the the kind of docu-comedy, that kind of idea of... um, Being able to look down the camera, and that's but that's just a classic clown technique of the moment of embarrassment, the moment of shame, (laughs) just sharing that with the audience. Um, and then being able to do that, which is kind of what we figured out about Play That Goes Wrong and uh, the Goes Wrong show, is that engaging with the studio audience when we're recording, able to record in front of a live audience, is actually much less effective than just looking down the barrel of the camera. Because everyone in the studio audience is watching it up above on screens anyway. And so by looking at the audience in the room, you disengage with the audience at home. Yeah. And I think that's particularly my character in season one suffered from from that because I was just so used to engaging with the audience in the room. And it's just finding ways of sharing. The camera enables you to share your inner thoughts or your inner, inner mischievous characters trying to mess about and upset other characters and be silly or whatever. And you, sh- you're able to share that secret with the audience and whether that secret is a positive thing, that you're being mischievous or it's a negative thing that you're really, really embarrassed. You, yeah, you're able to do that. And so I think in terms of what's coming next, there will be more kind of, um, innovative ways of sharing those kind of, Uh, comedic secrets with the audience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because the big physical stuff that you get in like 40 towers and then you get from things like the goes wrong show like big physical stunts are really really funny and they're hot back to kind of Chaplin and keaton and those kind of big big physical things but even Chaplin and keaton like they fall off a huge building and bang off loads of awnings and land in them pile of rubbish and get up and the first thing they do is dust themselves off and look straight up at the camera (laughs) I'm fine and then they walk off and so even they're sharing those moments with the audience and I think that's what the office opened up and I'm hoping that like we're kind of trying to open that that door of uh the the kind of clown the inner clown being able to share with the audience kind of what's happening I think what people are starting to do and I think we're seeing it a lot more in stand-up Stand-up is, for example, becoming much more narrative-based rather than like here's a list of jokes. They're they're becoming much more socially, socio, socio, socio-politically. Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Politically motivated. and they're talking about things like depression, anxiety, uh, miscarriage, like cancer, like really dark things, and finding ways to disarm them with humour. And so I think, and again, this is just another example of us as an audience being let into a secret that the that the comedian has. I was on Tinder for five years. Here are some of the batshit stories I've got for you that are really embarrassing. Some of them are gross. Some of them are exciting. Some of them are sexy. Some of them are sad. And we're, we're really kind of engaging with this idea of knowing these it's so strange it's just a, it's, it's just a human thing about somebody else that we've all experienced but we're starting to see it now yeah and we're starting to see it used creatively so I mean it wouldn't surprise me if there are kind of more more things like reality tv where you have a office style comedy set in a love island style setting
0: right yeah
1: but I think what's happening in comedy in general is it's it's becoming much more humanized and much more about personal uh personal narrative and personal experience that and and they people are using comedy to teach people about other people's experiences yeah and rather than just going here's a freak show or isn't it <laughs> funny if scott scottish people say this word like this or racially borderline insensitive comedy or These kind of things where we're just moving now more towards a much more, I think, much more exciting thing where it's like, oh, you can make me laugh. And then in the next moment, I'm kind of going, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened to you. That is funny. But wow, Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. And so I think that to me is really exciting.
0: Yeah, I think I mean the reason I ask that is cuz obviously actors are always being told, you know, go and write your own work, go and create your own mm. work and I think a lot of the time um actors might be like, fine, but where do I start? So yeah. You know, this to me sounds like a really good um jumping off point um of figuring out what could be funny that isn't just two mates hanging out and being idiots, but actually has a human story that is kind of underneath it all that kind of connects to some kind of truth.
1: Yeah. And you don't have to kind of, I think that's exactly it as well. The truth thing is really important because you don't have to producers and commissioners and, and the early stages of TV are, are, they're really intelligent people, but they're getting so much stuff in They're looking for like, what is it? What is it like? But what is it not the same as? And so I think the really exciting thing is stuff like Fleabag and even Killing Eve, um, obviously the same writers, but like created a, uh, an environment that was somehow so funny and, but also so moving. And I think producers taking a risk on that is amazing because I would go, what is this? Is it a ser- is it, is it, is it funny? Yeah. Or is it meant to be like a serious story about this woman's life? Cause it's quite tragic. Mm. And actually what it was, was brilliant. And so I think with writing, it's like, yeah, it's such a cliche, but nobody actually does it. Just, just write, write what you think is good. And then someone will either agree with you or they won't. And you'll get notes and you'll change it. And your first draft's going to be shit, but don't worry about that. Like just get it down. And then, then you can, then you can change it. And if you think it's funny, if you think it's good, allow other people to help you, but don't, Try and write for something because you, you don't know what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, I think that's really gorgeous advice, actually. Um, okay, well, I think that we are done. Um, I have a few more questions that I could have asked, but you've already touched on basically everything,
1: anyway. Very so good. Um, I talk a lot.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. it's great. It's lovely because um, it's much better than having like yes, no answers. So. Uh, mm. <laughs>
1: You can chop around it.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Shall I give Um, you a couple
1: of those just in case you want to put them in? (laughs) Yes. No. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) Yes. There you go. Brilliant. Thank you.
0: Um, Okay. So that's it. Thank you so much, Dave Hearn, for coming and chatting to me. Um, And we will post um, some bits and bobs of links uh, along with the transcript that we post up on our website where if any listeners are interested they can find out more about dave or about mischief theater and their various very very funny endeavors well that's it thanks for listening to this week's episode if you have any questions or queries about anything you've heard feel free to get in touch with us you can do so by emailing questions at spotlight.com or feel free to send a tweet to at spotlight uk We have lots of content on our website about making your own work and navigating the acting industry in general. So if you're keen to find out more, go to spotlight.com and navigate to the news and advice section. That's all from us for now. See you next time.